morning, Dr. Sarver. Welcome back to the conversation. Good morning, Angelita. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. Today, I want to talk about what is a medication-assisted treatment program, and we touched upon it at our very first conversation on ending the stigma, but I want to dive deeper in that today. So can you tell us a little bit about that? You bet. Historically, MAT medication, so medication-assisted treatment, which the language has changed around that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, are three different medications. The first uh, and probably most well-known is methadone. So you'll often hear of methadone clinics. These are clinics that have been designated by the federal government in the Data 2000 law to be comprehensive opiate treatment programs, or OTPs. They will both prescribe and dispense methadone. No other providers, physicians, PAs, or MPs, may prescribe methadone for opiate use disorder outside of an OTP, which is why they've been designated colloquially as methadone clinics. The next medication is Vivitrol or naltrexone. This medication is a once monthly injection of an opiate blocker, which is uh, much like Narcan, but it's long acting. So it will last, you get once monthly injection, and then you basically walk around Narcan all day. If you choose, you don't want to have an opiate in your system anymore. That's a good option. The next medication is probably outstripping methadone and Vivitrol in popularity is buprenorphine, which most people recognize as Suboxone. Other names for it are Subutex and Subsolve, which are slightly different formulations. These medications can be prescribed by any provider who has a DEA license, who then gets a separate certificate called an X waiver. And then they're allowed, once they apply for that, they're allowed to start prescribing one of the MAT medications, which is buprenorphine. Whereas all everyone who has a license to practice medicine can prescribe Vivitrol and only an OTP can prescribe methadone. So I noticed that there were some different terms out there about the medication treatment program, the medication-assisted recovery program, and other terms. And I just, for our listeners out there, if you could please take a moment and kind of clarify and make sure that there's not, you know, some confusion. Yeah, great question. Historically, these medications have been known as MAT or medication-assisted treatment. In order to reduce stigma around recovery, because there's some argument in the recovery community about differences between just treating opiates with another opiate and actually being in recovery from your addiction. So the the language shifted into being medication-assisted recovery. Further, um, we now call all of these programs medications for opiate use disorder. So anybody who's on a medication for opiate use disorder is in recovery. Once you're in for longer than a year, then you are in sustained recovery. Thank you for that explanation. That helps a whole lot. So moving forward in our conversation, what do you feel like are the benefits for the medications for opiate use disorder? The data is pretty clear that patients who use 
medications for recovery, and we're specifically speaking about opiate use disorder, have very high rates of staying off of illicit opiates and very low rates of overdose deaths. So these medications do save lives, according to the science out there. Currently, the data supports about a 85 to 90% success rate with methadone around an 85% success rate with buprenorphine. And Vivitrol or naltrexone isn't nearly as popular, so we don't have, that I'm aware of, real good data on on comparing those in a large population-wide studies. Well, on the flip side, from the benefits, what do you feel like has been the challenges for those people that are in recovery using these medications? The challenges are myriad. There are so many different barriers to care. Number one is shame cycle. When you are in your addiction, oftentimes you will use because of one of three things. One, you have a negative emotion. So you're either anxious or you're stressed or some negative life event happens. And so you use to escape reality. We all do that. We get on our phones and we escape. We go to the movie theater so we can escape. We turn on the television at night so we can escape or people are drinking beer or having a wine at the end of the day to escape. So that's common to the human experience. The next one is people will use when they are celebrating. So let's go out and have a beer and celebrate. Let's pop a bottle of champagne and celebrate. I am going to use heroin just a little bit to celebrate my good fortune or this great thing that happened, or when you're bored. And once one of those three things happens for those people in recovery and they relapse, then once they are sober again and they're withdrawing, they feel deep shame. That shame causes a negative experience, which will then send them into this cycle of use. So they have to break out of that shame cycle, one, and want to be in recovery. Withdrawal is the next big one. People will seek out a substance to stop being sick. It's normal. I'm sick. I want to go get some ibuprofen. I want some Tylenol. I want to feel better. I don't want this pain anymore. So that's normal in the human experience to want to avoid suffering and avoid pain. So they'll seek out the substance. So that's a barrier to care. The next one is knowledge. So education on as to what treatment options are out there. What do I use to make myself feel better? What's going to be better for my life? The next one is a generational cycle of trauma. So we talk about generational trauma. I learned from my parents and grandparents how to deal with the stresses in life. And that includes drinking alcohol. That includes smoking weed to feel better. That includes using opiates to calm myself and feel better. I use benzodiazepines to get rid of my anxiety. Or I smoke cigarettes because I just can't handle this right now. I'm going outside and having a cigarette. You name it. They're there. Those are the negative coping strategies that people have developed by watching their parents and their grandparents deal with their life stressors. The next ones are systemic. Some of them are governmental, putting blocks on allowing people with DEA licenses to prescribe MOUD medications by needing an X waiver has really stopped a lot of physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician associates from prescribing medications for opiate use disorder. They're almost afraid to. They don't want to delve into that. The opiate pandemic has caused people to be afraid of any opiate medications. They just don't want to deal with that. That's for those doctors or, or physician associates or nurse practitioners who like to deal with that population over there, which leads us into stigma. 
Patients don't want to admit to their providers that they have opiate use disorder because they don't want to admit it to their families. They don't want to lose their position at their company or their position in society or even maybe even admit it to themselves that they have a problem, which is very common with alcohol. And this cycle of stigma and lack of access to these medications is really killing people. And I'm sure there's another one is cost. When you are deep into addiction, uh, you are going to inevitably damage your social relationships. You're going to damage your ability to have gainful employment. And with that comes poverty. And once you're in poverty, you don't have money to go to the doctor. You don't have money to buy uh, your medication and keep on your medication. And therefore you cannot get into recovery because it's too expensive. Didn't think about all of that, but that makes sense. It's the continued cycle that they have to go through. So in speaking of the three different types of medications, how long can someone be on that program? Great question. And I get this question probably from every single patient. I am a a colloquially called a Suboxone doctor. So I prescribe Suboxone. So that's the one that I know best. So that's the one that I'll talk about. Most patients who use Suboxone will be on it for life. Data supports a medication wean after 18 months down to a very low dose of Suboxone. Oftentimes we'll counsel patients, the data suggests that if you wean completely off Suboxone, you are at risk for death. Now, the reasons there, and I, this is anecdotal, and but some of it's supported by data, that the death is probably caused by relapse. So all of the opiates out there, I don't care whether it's a pressed pill or it, you think you're getting heroin, it's not a pressed pill and it's not heroin, it is fentanyl. Everything out there is fentanyl. So if you used five years ago and you used heroin and you go back and you try to use the same amount of heroin, one, your tolerance isn't there. So even if it was heroin, you still might wind up dead. Two, it's not heroin, it's fentanyl, which is many times more powerful and you will go into respiratory depression, you will die, which is why we tell patients to remain on Suboxone or a lot of providers will tell patients you have to remain on Suboxone for life. Now I'm very honest to my patients. I tell them, this is America, you're an adult, here's the data, you're gonna make your own decisions. However, just know that if you stop this medication, you're at risk for death. One of the neat things that buprenorphine does is it has a higher affinity for the receptors in the brain. And so it will knock other opiates off and that actually protects you against overdose. So if you're on Suboxone and you continue to use your medication and you go out and use, you're less likely to die. So keep taking your medication. You might have to take it for life, but guess what? We're all taking cholesterol medications for the rest of our life too. It's just another medication to deal with one of your chronic conditions. It's no big deal. That is a great point. We don't equate that with other chronic care conditions. And I think if we could drill home that message that it's like having diabetes or it's like having high cholesterol or blood pressure, I think it's a more acceptable chronic care condition. And that makes complete sense. So I have another question. Is counseling or a support group required or recommended as part of this program? So data supports using uh, counseling, specifically addictions counseling, along with your medication does provide a higher retention rate for a patient staying in recovery and staying with the program. However, 
it should not be a barrier to care. So we'll often tell patients we recommend counseling because you're probably going to do better and your life is going to be easier if you go talk to somebody and they give you ideas about how to have better coping strategies for when you get these life stressors to not want to go use a substance, but rather do something positive. I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts about positive versus negative coping strategies. So counselors will have a full hour with you often weekly to go through, hey, what are some of the coping strategies you tried in the week before and how did they work? Were they successful in alleviating some of your anxiety, some of your stress, some of your anger? Do we need to try others? When you go in for your visit with your doctor, we only have 15 minutes with you and that's not enough time to make sure there's nothing wrong medically, do a full physical exam, get you your medicine, refill all your medicines, and then counsel you on how your past week, two weeks or month went for your coping strategies. I try, but again, I only get to do five minutes of counseling per visit when really you need an hour weekly in order to go through how your week went. That brings up another question. How often do you see them as their physician? Like how often do they come into your office to get a medication refill? It depends on how early you are in recovery and how much like any chronic condition, let's say that you have high blood pressure. We say, oh, looks like that blood pressure is high. This is your first diagnosis. This is the second time we've checked it. We're now putting you on a medication. You're going to come back in a week for a blood pressure check. And then I'm going to see you back in this amount of time to check it again and see if we need to increase your medicine. Opiate use disorder is no different. So we determine you have opiate use disorder. You decide, I do want to start a medication for opiate use disorder, and we agree to try Suboxone. Then we induce you. We send you the medication. You try it out at home. You come back in three days and tell me how it went. As long as you found the dose that works for you, you come back in a week to make sure there is no hiccups and make sure that you're taking the medication appropriately and it's working for your cravings. As long as that's working, we do weekly visits for the first month. Then we go out to two weeks for two visits for a total of a month. And then I see every month until you decide you want to wean the medication down. Do you partner with the support community in that, like, if you have a new patient and they have accepted the fact that they're, they want to do this and you ask them, you know, what is their current support? Do you recommend a specific provider that provides that counseling that they need? Like, do you partner with someone in your community or do you just kind of give them some different options and then let them choose? Kind of all of the above. And we are currently in the process of trying to have an in-house addictions counselor. However, I'm a little picky in that (laughs) I really want an addictions counselor who treats PTSD because PTSD is very prevalent in the recovery community. So people who have specifically had opiate use disorder probably came into their opiate use disorder with trauma, more than likely, whether it's trauma early on because of their parents or grandparents or coping strategies, which caused trauma in their lives, or it's trauma that was actually caused by them being high on drugs and the poor life decisions they made, 
invariably they're going to have some sort of trauma in their life and they may have PTSD from that. And it's very common. And so I like for the counselors that I send my patients to, to be trained in PTSD counseling as well as addiction counseling so they can treat the underlying cause of some of the patient's stressors. And if they're having panic attacks, get to the root cause of that, which will make their incidence of wanting to relapse go down. One of the things that you said a while ago that made me think when we were talking about the cost and the poverty plays a part in this, when people come to you, are they those that are insured? Do they pay private pay? How do they afford it? The vast majority of treatment programs out there are cash pay. That is changing. Many providers now will take insurance. For instance, I take Medicaid, Medicare, all the commercial insurances. So all of my patients, if they come to me cash pay, we have patient financial services who will then get them signed up for Medicaid and we'll get them on Medicaid. So they will have insurance coverage. For those who are cash pay, the government has many different grant programs that will pay for them to get into recovery. So that change is coming and we're already doing it. Currently, finances should not be a barrier to getting into recovery because there are programs out there who will take patients who can't pay. Many emergency departments also are instituting some uh, warm handoff programs where if you overdose and wind up in the emergency department, they will prescribe you Suboxone and get you to a doctor the, the next day or the next couple of days. Not having money in order to get in recovery is no longer a reason not to seek out recovery. I think that is really good to know. And I like the fact that the emergency rooms are connecting the dots right there for that good handoff, if you will, that care transition. I think that's vitally important. I'm going to give that one an asterisk and just let (laughs) you know that that it, it really is program dependent. And so not all emergency departments do that but it is coming and not all MOUD providers will take insurance. So do your homework, ask. So as the patients just call up and say, Hey, do you take my insurance? And if they say, no, keep calling. They are out there. You can get into recovery. That kind of transitions, you know, another question is how does one get connected that administers the program? And I think you just answered that, you know, just calling and asking and Googling and things like that. Wonderful community resources called Peer Recovery Coaches. Peer Recovery Coaches are their lifeline to connecting to whatever resources are in the community to get them dialed into into recovery. If you're currently uh, in active addiction with opiate use disorder, then you really need to reach out. First, talk to your family care physician, family care provider. And if they don't know, then find a peer recovery coach. They absolutely will know. That's good to know. And that may be for a really good another conversation (laughs) is to uh, have a a peer recovery coach come on and uh, meet us at the table. So definitely. Well, thank you, Dr. Sarver. This was really great information. And, And just knowing that, you know, there's some different terms out there that people are using, but, you know, what they are now Uh, referring to as the medications for opioid use disorders. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Angelita.